If you have a Bible and would open up to Revelation chapter 2, we begin this morning to work our way through the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven messages which the exalted Son of Man whom we saw last week has given to His saints, to us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. To the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. The first letter. From the son of man to the churches shook me to the core. And my prayer has been and is that it will have the same effect upon each and every one of you this morning. Because if it does, then that is very, very good news. Because it means that we have ears to hear, which do not belong to us by nature. Having spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to us, is a precious gift of sovereign grace. And so if we hear this morning, we should fall on our faces before the Lord Jesus who has given us the gift to hear His message. So it's good to be shaken. It's good to be devastated. By this call to repent. And that's what we pray for. The key to understanding the message of this letter is to understand the relationship between verses 2 and 3 and verses 4 and 5. Which appear at first glance to be contradictory. In verse 3, Jesus commends the Ephesian church for enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, he says. So the Ephesian church is persevering. They are enduring patiently. They are bearing up under some great weight, which I take to be persecution. And they have not grown weary in their perseverance. They have not given up and they have not given in. And that's good, right? I mean, Jesus told his disciples Twice in Matthew 10.22 and Matthew 24.13 that it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. In this world you will have tribulation. It is the one who endures to the end through that tribulation who will enter into the everlasting kingdom. And that appears to be what the Ephesian church is doing. Right? But in verses 4 and 5, Jesus turns right around and he rebukes them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And he then tells them to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And then he threatens them. If not, if you do not remember and repent and return I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
And I'm going to argue this morning that the removal of the lampstand in verse 5 is equivalent to being denied access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, according to verse 7. I'm going to argue that for Jesus to say, I will remove your lampstand, is to say, I will not give you access to the tree of life, to the paradise of God, i.e., to the new heavens and the new earth. I think they're parallel. In other words, Jesus is threatening the Ephesian church with eternal damnation if they do not repent. There it is. Which begs the question, and ought to shake us, not a little. How can a church endure patiently, bearing up under the weight of persecution for the sake of Christ's name and not grow weary, and yet end up excluded from the presence of God? That's the question of this text. If, if we can answer that question, grace. How can one persevere and yet not be saved? That's the mystery we need to unlock this morning. So let's pray as we move through this to that end. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven letters which were sent from the risen and exalted Lord Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And as this is our first week in these seven letters, I thought it wise to take just a few moments and to handle two questions that are related to the interpretation of these seven letters. All right, the first question relates to how we are to understand and apply these letters, which are written some 2,000 years ago to churches located halfway around the world, how we are to interpret, to interpret and apply these letters in our own present-day context. Well, to this question, I think, I think three points need to be made. First, these are real churches in real cities filled with real people who are enduring real tribulation at a real place in time. Now, I know that sounds maybe a bit elementary, but there's a reason why I need to state it. These letters, and in fact, all of Revelation, which is itself one giant letter, were written first for a particular audience. They were written to address immediate problems and to provide immediate encouragement and to issue immediate warnings within their immediate context, which means that they cannot mean something to us that it didn't mean first to them. And this is precisely my problem with the prevailing view that is found within evangelicalism for the past century or so, which views the vast majority of Revelation, Revelation as having little or no relevance to the congregations in Asia Minor near the end of the first century to whom they were first written. Because, according to this view, they have to do only with some future seven-year tribulation, which now, some 2,000 years later, has yet to occur. So if we're going to approach the book of Revelation that way, if we're going to approach these letters in that way, then Revelation has had little to no relevance to the church throughout the first 2,000 years of its existence. And that's an interpretation I'm not willing to take. Because the Word of God is profitable for instruction, for correction, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. So that we, the men and women of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Interpreting Revelation accurately requires that we begin by placing ourselves in Ephesus, or Smyrna, or Pergamum, or Thyatira, or Sardis, or Philadelphia, or Laodicea, toward the end of the first century, and then work from there into our context in Nixa near the beginning of the 21st century. In other words, we need to interpret the book of Revelation in much the same way as we interpret every other New Testament letter. What did it mean to them? And in understanding what it meant to them, we can understand what it means to us. So we don't start with us. We start with them. Second, while these letters were written to real churches in real cities filled with real people who are enduring real tribulation at a real place in time, they are at the same time written to the church, 
living in these last days of tribulation between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. They were written to the church in the tribulation, which includes us, First Baptist Nixa. I think this is indicated by the selection of seven churches, seven being a symbolic number used throughout Revelation to project the idea of completeness or perfection. As I said a few weeks ago, there were far more than seven churches in Asia Minor near the end of the first century, but seven were chosen. Why? Because these seven represent the totality of the church living in these last days. They are representative in nature. See, every church living in these last days lives within the same basic context. We live in biblical terminology in the last days. We live in the days of tribulation. And we are enduring by faith through the assaults that the dragon is, is waging war against us. We endure through his schemes and we await the triumphant return of the king. We are enduring and awaiting in the same way that the churches of the first century were enduring and awaiting. In the same way that every true church for 2,000 years has been enduring and awaiting. And as we'll see, some churches fare better in these days of tribulation and some churches fare worse. Some are more faithful and some are less faithful and some are utterly unfaithful. And our task is to study Jesus' words to each church to receive his encouragements to them as encouragements to us, to heed his warnings to them as warnings to us. Yes, these were real churches first, but they are letters to the church as well. And so the words of Jesus there towards the end of the letter, let him who has ears, let him hear, those are words to us. Third, each letter follows the same basic pattern, and we would do well to recognize this. They all begin with an address to the angel of the church, followed by an identification of the author who is Jesus, an identification that is drawn from the vision of the Son of Man that we covered last week in verses 9 to 20. Then Jesus reviews the current situation in the church. I know your works. And he either commends them for their faithfulness, or he condemns them for their faithlessness, or he does some combination of the two, as in the church of Thyatira. Finally, he encourages them to persevere, or commands them to repent. And then he encourages them to hear the word of the Spirit, and he promises eternal blessings to the one who overcomes, blessings that are drawn from The final vision in the book of Revelation from 21 and 22, the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Second question that we need to deal with before we go into this first letter relates to the identity of those angels. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, or in chapter 1 and verse 20, who are these angels of the seven churches who are represented by the seven stars that are in the Son of Man's right hand? Well, if you read three different commentaries or listen to three different sermons or look at three different study Bibles, you'll probably find three different explanations for this strange phrase. Because the Greek word angelos, angel, or angeloi, angels, can refer either to heavenly beings, like we think of angels, or also to earthly messengers. Some understand the angels of the churches to be either messengers who delivered the letters to the churches, or maybe the leader of the church, presumably the pastor, who then read the message and delivered it to the people. This is John MacArthur's view, for instance. And it has some merit. The problem with this view of seeing the angels of the seven churches as human messengers, though, is that the word translated angel or angels is used some 60 times in the book of Revelation, and every time it refers to heavenly beings, without a single exception. 
In addition, we've already noted that John relies heavily upon the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 10, we find that there are angels, both good and evil, who were in some way connected to the nations of the earth. So in Daniel 10, you see him talking about the prince, which is a reference to the angel. It's clearly an angelic being. The prince of the nation of Persia and the prince of the nation of Greece. And Michael, who is the prince of the people of God, the nation of Israel. Well, if that's true in Daniel 10, and John relies very heavily upon Daniel's visions, then could it not also be true that there are angels in some way connected to the churches? In some way present in our worship gatherings? That seems to be behind verses like 1 Corinthians 11.10 or 1 Peter 1.12. So in this way, if Jesus is referring actually to heavenly beings that are in some way connected to earthly churches, Jesus would be reminding the churches of their spiritual existence and of their heavenly help and protection. This is my view. I view the angels of the churches as angelic beings. I think this is the correct understanding and really the only difficulty I see with taking the angels of the seven churches to be angelic beings is that it seems to us a little strange to address letters to earthly churches to heavenly beings. That seems weird to us, but can we be honest for a second? What in the book of Revelation is not strange at first glance? Like, I don't think weirdness should be the criterion by which we throw out this interpretation. So, in these seven letters, over the next seven weeks, I'm going to be taking the, the letter as letters to the churches that are addressed to the angels of the churches in order to remind the churches that they're not merely earthly gatherings. We have a spiritual existence, which is the same truth pointed to by the fact that we are represented by lampstands in the midst of which the Son of Man walks. Now, as I stated earlier, each of the seven letters begins with an address to the angel of the particular church and with an identifying statement from the author drawn from the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. So we read in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now with a population exceeding a quarter of a million people towards the end of the first century, and situated as it was at the convergence of three major trade routes, Ephesus was the leading city of Asia Minor, which might explain why it receives the first letter from the Lord Jesus. Ephesus sat on the Aegean Gulf. You can find it if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible. At the mouth of the Caister River in what is now modern-day Turkey. It was a major center for pagan worship, It contained temples and shrines of the imperial imperial cult, which was the worship of Caesars, and was the location of the great temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The church in Ephesus had been planted by the Apostle Paul, who had brought the gospel to Ephesus towards the end of his second missionary journey, somewhere around AD 53. Paul did not stay long on that particular occasion, but he did leave Priscilla and Aquila there, we read from Acts 18, who were soon then joined by Apollos, and they began to water on what Paul had planted. And then a couple of years later, Paul returned on his third missionary journey and spent some three years, a long time by Pauline standards, ministering, building, establishing the church at Ephesus. Timothy would then spend much of the decade of the 60s in Ephesus, we learn from 1 Timothy 1.3, and tradition says that Ephesus was where John, the apostle, planted his roots toward the remaining decades of his life. So the Ephesian church, by the time it receives this letter, had been in existence for about 40 years and had been planted on a very, very firm apostolic foundation. After addressing the angel of the church in Ephesus, Jesus then introduces himself 
as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, that comes from chapter 1, verses 13 and 16. That the Son of Man holds the seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels of the churches, speaks to his divine authority over heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is the basis for the Great Commission. And that he walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, speaks to his vigilance, his omniscience, his presence among the churches, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. The point is that Jesus is not distant. He is not remote. He is not removed from his churches. He is not powerless to protect his churches, to bless his churches, or to judge his churches. He is Lord of the church in every sense of the word. His presence among his churches means that he is keenly aware of all that transpires in our midst. All that we are and all that we do, Jesus sees with his eyes like flames of fire. So he can say to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So Jesus' commendation of the Ephesian church is for their perseverance, their patient endurance. And it is clear that their perseverance takes the form of a steadfast commitment to doctrinal faithfulness and discernment. This is a church that was standing firm and contending for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. And this is good. This is important. This is praiseworthy. Because false teaching is a danger to any and every church. And it was an especially imminent threat in Ephesus. Maybe it was because of their, their cultural or economic or religious condition as the crossroads of the Roman Empire. But whatever the reason, heresy was especially prominent in Ephesus. And false teachers presented to the church at Ephesus a clear and present danger. So much so that when the Apostle Paul came back through towards in the region of Ephesus on the end of his third missionary journey, he called for the Ephesian elders to come to him at Miletus. And he gave them this parting instruction. Everything in what he says is, is given this great weight. He says, I know that I will never see you again, so pay attention to the instruction that I'm going to give you. What instruction does he give the Ephesian elders? Last words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And indeed it happened just as Paul had prophesied. Because about 10 years later, Paul writes to Timothy while he is in Ephesus, and he says, I left you in Ephesus for this very reason, that you would teach certain men not to, you would instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In fact, false teaching is the common theme that is woven throughout First and Second Timothy while Timothy is, is at the church at Ephesus. It's also a major theme in First, Second, and Third John, which church tradition says were written from the church at Ephesus. So the point is that the threat of heresy was real and it was imminent and it was serious to the Ephesian church. And it was not easily combated. It resurfaced often in vicious assaults upon the truth of God. But the Ephesian believers were standing fast. They were persevering in the defense of the faith as evidenced by two things. Jesus says, number one, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. 
Evidently, many false teachers came through Ephesus claiming to be apostles of Christ, but the Ephesian church did not, did not accept them at face value without testing them, probably by comparing their doctrine with the doctrine of the apostle Paul and of the apostle John, or by, by looking for the, what Paul calls the marks of an apostle, the signs of an apostle, which was the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders that accompanied their proclamation of the gospel. They didn't have the right doctrine, they didn't have the marks of the apostle, they were sent on their way. Second, Jesus says in verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans except that they appear here in Revelation 2.6 and they appear a little bit later in Revelation 2.15, but they seem to have been a sect of Christianity that held to certain heresies, probably Gnosticism, which led to immorality. But whatever the exact nature of the heresy, the point is that the Ephesian church persevered. They were fighting it, often at great cost to themselves. They were bearing up under the heavy burden for the sake of Christ's name. And do not forget the fact that not only was this church assaulted from within by heresy, but it was assaulted assaulted from without by persecution, which remains the background for all of these seven letters, whether it's explicitly stated or not. The Ephesian church had been planted in the soil of persecution. Read Acts 19. And that persecution had not subsided over the 40 years, but rather was ramping up. As the demands of emperor worship grew stronger and stronger in Asia Minor and in Ephesus in particular. So what do we glean from this? What a church, right? Strong in doctrine. Testing the apostles. Finding them to be false and sending them away. Hating the immoral works of the Nicolaitans and the heresies of the false teachers. This is a church to emulate, right? Well, not so fast. Because then comes these startling words from Jesus. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. The church at Ephesus had lost their first love. Their head was in the right place. Their heart was far from him. They thought right things about God, but they did not feel the right things concerning God. They were intellectually sound and they were emotionally dry. They were theologically discerning, yet they were spiritually dying. And as we will see, this placed them in grave and imminent danger. One commentator, G.K. Beale, reminded me when I was studying for this message, he said the Ephesians were zealous for doctrinal purity. But so also were the Pharisees. This is what shook me to the core. Because I'm somebody who cares deeply and passionately about theological truth. We are a church that cares deeply and thinks deeply about theological matters. And so this letter is a warning to me and it is a warning to you that it is entirely possible to be theologically sound and spiritually dead. It is entirely possible to defend the faith and yet miss out on the essence of faith. Just go take a look at Twitter and you will see what I mean. So as we move on in this letter, God help us that we don't miss the mark. What does it look like for a church to abandon its first love? Well, I think we get two clues from the exhortation and threat that Jesus issues to the church in verse 5. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
All right, so the first clue comes from looking at what Jesus exhorts the church at Ephesus to do. They are to, number one, remember from where they have fallen, and number two, they are to repent and return to the works they did at first. Now, I find that really interesting. I find it interesting what Jesus says and what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, repent and feel the love that you felt at first. That's not what he says. We're not talking merely about feelings here. The problem is not just that the Ephesian church had lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. Bring back that love and feel. That's not the way that Jesus addresses the church. No, because love had once prompted them to some action that was no longer taking place within the church because the love had grown cold. So a renewal of love also meant a renewal of action. You see it? You have lost your first love, therefore repent and return to the works. You've lost your first love, so you've lost your first works. Repentance and returning to your first love is going to mean repenting and returning to your first works. So what are these works? What is this action? Well, that brings us to the second clue. What does Jesus threaten if they don't repent? Well, if they do not remember and repent and return, Jesus says, I will come and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. What in the world does that mean? Well, you remember the lampstand represents the church. Chapter 1, verse 20. A lampstand, okay, remember, think menorah, right? One stem, three branches coming out from the same, seven lamps. A lampstand holds the seven lamps or candles or flames which represent the Spirit. This is an Old Testament vision. This is an Old Testament image. It comes from Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6 and also from Revelation 1, 4. It is the Spirit which causes the lampstand to shine forth and to light up the darkness. Lampstands in and of themselves produce no light. Churches in and of themselves produce no light. A church absent the light of the Spirit is dark and is dead. No matter what they believe rightly concerning theology. This imagery of the church as a lampstand holding forth the light of the Spirit into the darkness of the world, it speaks to the church's role as the witness to the nations. Jesus spoke precisely in these terms in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. But rather they put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But what if a church ceases to shine? What if they do what Jesus says they ought not do? To put it under a bushel or to hide their their light under a theology book? Jesus says, I'll come, I'll take the lampstand away. What happens if we hide our light and refuse to shine? Evidently, the light goes out. I think the point of this threat is that if the Ephesian church refuses to shine forth the light of the gospel into the surrounding darkness, then the flame of the Spirit will go out and the church will cease to be a church in any real spiritual sense. Jesus will remove its light-bearing function and capability. In essence, Jesus is threatening to remove the Holy Spirit from the church. Listen, the people may still gather. They may still come and sing songs, listen to sermons, read books, debate theology. But the glory will have departed. Just like the glory has departed from so Many half-full churches. And this is a warning to our church, lest we become one of them. When the flame of the Spirit is extinguished, 
then the church is just left to dry, dead orthodoxy, which in a manner of about a generation will become dry, dead heterodoxy or false doctrine. See, missions, that's what we're talking about here. Missions is not an option for a living, loving church. You cannot be a living church and not be engaged in missions. You cannot be a living church and be dark and not shine into the darkness of Nixa and into the darkness of the nations. You cannot do it. So does this confirm our our first clue? Were, Were the works you did at first that Jesus refers to related to light bearing missions? Is there evidence that the church at Ephesus was once originally a missionally vibrant congregation? Indeed there is. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, Luke records that during Paul's few years in Ephesus, quote, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia is a big region. And two and a half years is not a very long time. There is no way that every person in Asia, every community in all of the region of Asia could have heard the word of the Lord if Paul was traveling to each and every one of them by himself. That's not the way it happened. Paul came and shone the light of the gospel in Ephesus. A church was created. A lampstand was established. The lights were lit with the flames of the Spirit. And the church at Ephesus, the people of Ephesus, people just like you and me, they began to go all over Asia Minor at Paul's direction. Spreading the light of the gospel to those who were near and to those who were far. They shone brightly into the darkness of Asia. Such that in less than three years' time, the entire region was evangelized. Paul mobilized the young church at Ephesus to shine forth their light among the nations because that is what love does. It reaches out and it shines forth. But when love grows cold, the heart turns inward and it begins to die. Jesus concludes the letter with a parable and a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I use the word parable because that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, probably rings a bell in your mind because you've read it before. You've read it in the Gospels whenever Jesus would tell a parable, like the parable of the sower and the soils, he would end the parable with this phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. In other words, whenever Jesus would say something mysterious, like a parable, he would conclude with this phrase. And so would the Old Testament prophets before him. You can find that whenever they spoke in a symbolic act or or in a parable, they often would conclude the parable with this phrase, him who has an ear, let him hear. It's found in Isaiah 6, Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 12. What's going on here? Well, Dr. Beale says this, when their straightforward preaching got no attention, the prophets resorted to more dramatic means. But such a change in warning form is effective only with those who have spiritual insight. Symbolic parables cause those who have ears to hear and hear not only to misunderstand further. These actions and parables have the effect of gaining the attention of true believers, of shocking some unbelievers or backslidden believers into repentance, and of hardening the hearts of the rest, whose lack of spiritual wisdom prevented them from seeing the significance of the actions or parables, end quote. Which is simply a paraphrase of Jesus' answer when the disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? He says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been granted, so that seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear. 
So by using this prophetic hearing formula, Jesus is signaling that what is to come in the letters and in the entirety of Revelation is going to be like a parable. It's going to be symbolic. And the effect that it will have upon those who hear, namely us, will be the same. Some will not hear, but rather will be hardened and will continue to bow before the beast or to get in bed with the prostitute. But others will hear. Not only with their physical ears, but with their hearts and with their souls. And they will believe and they will repent and they will overcome. They will conquer and they will eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To overcome, it's New American Standard, to conquer, ESV, is simply to hear the word of Christ and to respond appropriately. In the case of the Ephesian church and in the case of us this morning, here, here's what you should do if you have an ear to hear. If you want to overcome and eat from the tree of life, here's what you need to do. You need to remember the height from which you have fallen and you need to repent and return to the works you did at first. And if you do, Jesus promises that he will grant to you, he will grant to us to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which is a clear reference to the opening chapters of Genesis and will be picked up again in the imagery of Revelation 22 when John sees the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ will have removed the curse and made all things new and paradise, which was lost, will now be restored. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Clearly, then, The removal of the lampstand, which is the removal of the presence of the Spirit from the midst of the churches, is equivalent to being denied access to the tree of life in the paradise of God, which is tantamount to being accursed and excluded from the eternal joys of heaven. Listen, loveless doctrine is no joke. First Baptist Nixa, let us fear this morning, lest we be a church that dots our theological I's and crosses our theological T's and minds our theological P's and Q's, yet is devoid of that joy and love in Christ which overflows and expands in love to others, shining the light into the darkness of sin and the brokenness of our neighbors and of the nations. Let us fear lest that should happen here. So the application of this letter for us this morning, it neatly falls into three categories. Let me give them to you. Number one, this text calls us to love doctrine. It does. It may not sound like it from what Jesus said and from the way that I've been preaching, All this stuff about being discerning yet dying, doctrinal yet dry. But let's pause for a second and remember that Jesus begins by commending the church for their doctrinal discernment. They knew the truth. They knew these apostles were not speaking the truth, that they were false, and they rejected them. And Jesus says, good. And we want Jesus to look on us and say, good. Which means that we need to be doctrinal. We need to be a church that knows and loves truth. Remember, we need to remember, Jesus hates the Nicolaitan heresy. Like, that's not a nice word. Like, I'm not super fond of the Nicolaitans. No, I hate them. You hate them. And I love that you hate them. There are things to hate in churches. And they're the things that Jesus hates. Doctrine is vitally important, as these seven letters will make clear. So this text calls us, First Baptist Nixa, to deep theology and solid 
doctrinal discernment. Okay? But, doctrine divorced from passion, joy, and love for Christ is dead and damnable. So second, this church calls us to love Jesus. The message of this text is not grit your teeth and get on with missions, because that's what churches do. Right? That's not the way to address the heart of the church. You cannot just grit your teeth and love people and have a burden for the lost. Love for people is the overflow of joy in and love for Christ. So in remembering from where we have fallen and returning to our first love, we must not neglect that our first love is not missions, our first love is Christ. The best thing that we can do to ignite in our church and in our own individual hearts a missionary zeal and kindle a passion for the nations is to stoke the fires of our passion, our joy, and our love for Jesus. And that means coming to the means of grace. The word, worship, fellowship, prayer, the supper. It means coming to the means of grace as to a well of living water and drinking deeply and thirstily in order to create and to satisfy a deep thirst in our souls. So, First Baptist Nixa, the call of this text is that we would be a doctrinal church who, who presses deep into this word. Seeking to know what it says, what is true, to know God accurately and rightly, burning theology, and to press deeply into the pursuit of Christ so that there is no division or distinction between our pursuit of Him and our pursuit of theology, but rather our pursuit of right theology is the right pursuit of Jesus. It's theology on fire. Thirdly, this text calls us to love people. We are a lampstand, and lampstands are designed for one purpose. And it is to hold the lamps that shine forth light. So whether we're shining on our neighbors or shining on the nations, we must shine or Jesus will come and remove the lampstand. Use it or lose it. And who can tell which comes first? Right? The love or the works. Jesus instructed the Ephesian church, note this, verse 5, to return to their first love by returning to their first works. The reason so many of us feel a lack of love for other people is because we're not stepping out in faith into meaningful ministry and missions. We're sitting back and waiting to be zapped by some feeling of love in order that we will feel like engaging in ministry and missions. And I'm telling you, it's not how it works and it's not what Jesus says. The mystery of missions is that often God does not fill us with love until we begin pouring out. Trusting Him to provide us with what we need. You may feel like a dry sponge and that's why you never sign up to go on mission trips. You feel like you don't have any water to wring out upon thirsty people. And that's why you never step out in faith and allow yourself to be wrung. But I'm telling you that if you will wring yourself out in faith, in sacrificial ministry and missions, even though you feel dry, you will find God pouring living water into your soul for the wringing. I'll confess something to you this morning if you promise not to tell Larry Lewis.
I don't really feel like going to Cuba before we go. It's uncomfortable. That's a six-hour van ride, by the way. Clearly. It's uncomfortable. It's an interruption in my daily life. It... It's, it's a hardship on my family that I don't like to impose upon them. And, you know, I just don't like stepping out of the first world into the developing world. I like to end my nights on my couch and in my bed. In the same room as my wife and not Mark. Mark. almost said beside my wife and not Mark, but that would have given you the wrong connotation. (laughs) There were two beds. But I've learned something about missions. I've learned that I go ring out in order to be filled. I've learned that there is a love and a joy that is available only in the engagement of ministry and missions. That if I wait to feel Beforehand, in order for me to go, I'll never go because it won't come. You won't find yourself walking on the water until you get out of the boat. So if you want to return to your first love and you feel that your first love is dry, return to your first works. And you will feel the first love welling up within you like a fountain of living water that is filling you and overflowing for the refreshment of the peoples. And it's a mystery. Because that's counterintuitive. Because many of you are thinking, I can't go, what would I give? It's all I can do to keep my life together here. And I'm suggesting that maybe, just maybe, You're having trouble keeping your life together here and feeling dry all the time because you're not going. So return to your first love by returning to your first works. First Baptist Nixa, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 